me tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, happy Monday, everybody. And this is going to be a letter show because I just have to catch up on some letters. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit. They shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. Why just said that? But it is worth it twice. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense. Against the wickedness and snares of the devil, may God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God cast into hell, Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, let's open the big book on the coffee table. You know the one, the Bible. Today, we start with the books of Maccabees. And who were the Maccabees? And what were their books about? And are they Bible? Yes, they are Bible. They're inspired. Um, there are certain Bibles that don't include them, and certain people don't think they're inspired scripture. But the majority of Christians, uh, for the majority of Christian history, have regarded them as inspired. And the Catholic Church at this point, we certainly regard them as inspired. In other words, breathed. the Holy Spirit is breathed into them. They're they're They're... You know, when you hear inspired, you think infallible, but it's not about infallible. It's about, it's about, uh, um, the, the Holy Spirit breathing in these books. You know, the, the scriptures are very human and very divine. Uh, they are, a, a 2000 year history of God's relationship with human beings, of the conversation between God and man, beginning with Abraham. Well, what about Genesis? That's part of the conversation. But the real period of dialogue is is uh, 2000 BC to, uh, to uh, the end of the apostolic period. So Maccabees is certainly part of that dialogue. The context of Maccabees. Maccabees, it was probably written about 100, 120 years before Christ, but it covers a period of, of the Jewish revolt from 175 to 134 BC. And it, it talks about the salvation of the Jewish people through a family called the Hashmon family, Mattathias Hashmon. H-A-S-H-M-O-N. That was uh, the, 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 the family name. All right. It's called Maccabees because Maccab means hammer in Aramaic. And I believe Aramaic. And uh, 
Uh, yes, but uh, it's patashim in in Hebrew. So that makab, it's got to be Aramaic. So uh, the they were called the hammers because they hammered the Greeks. Now, who were the Greeks? Remember Alexander the Great? Um, Alexander the Great rampaged through that part of the world 300 B.C. And he died without a clear heir. Uh, and those people who could have been his heirs were promptly killed. His generals fought among each other for supremacy. This is supremacy. This is 300 years before Christ. There was one who took over Greece, but the two important ones were General Seleucus, who took over Antioch and the territories east, and General Ptolemy, who took over Egypt and that southern coast of the Mediterranean. And the descendants of General Seleucus and the descendants of General Ptolemy became rulers of that part of the world and fought constantly with one another for political, economic, and territorial advantage. They were always at each other's throats. Um, Cleopatra, for instance, <laughs> was a Ptolemy. She was Greek. She wasn't genetically Egyptian at all. She was Greek. And, well, that's kind of... A little known fact. She was the first member of her family who actually bothered learning the Egyptian language. They lived in Alexandria. They were made pharaohs, uh, uh, but they really weren't Egyptian. Uh, the Syrian Greeks are the ones we're dealing with in this book, the descendants of Seleucus. And they really believed in a common world culture. They insisted on Greek customs, Greek gods, in the ancient world, it was not really considered that you could have different religions. Uh, you had to agree on religion uh, because you. how do you create a cohesive society without a cohesive religion? Morality is a religious function. You can't agree on morality. Well, how do you have a society? Well, my religion says I should kill babies. Well, my religion says you shouldn't. Well, how do you, how do you manage? You know, the jury's still out. We believe in a pluralistic society, but the jury is still out. It, it has worked in this country for mm, a couple centuries. We hope it continues to work. But I digress. Don't want to do politics. Well, the, um, this family, the Maccabees, the, the, the short story is that, um, <clears throat> The Greek kings of Antioch, the, the, the Seleucus, the descendants of the Seleucids, they were called, uh, they decided that they would be worshipped as gods and that the Greek gods would be worshipped and the Greek gods really, really liked pork. And thus, uh, there would have to be altars to the Greek gods established in the temple in Jerusalem. Um, they would... Um, uh, offer pork uh, and eat part of the offering and uh, just horrible things that to the Jews were utterly repulsive. So that's what's going on. King Antiochus, once a hostage at Rome, is one of the Seleucids, he became king in the year 137 of the kingdom of the Greeks. That's 137 years after Alexander. So that brings us to 170 AD. 
In those days there appeared in Israel breakers of the law. Let us go and make an alliance with the, with the Gentiles. The word Gentile, of course, means it's from the Latin word gens, which means nation. Uh, in, in Hebrew, uh, if you are a... Um, uh, a non-Jew, you are called a goy, <laughs> which means someone who lives in the nations. Uh, the 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 um, uh, in the Latin for that is Gentile, so the non-Jews. Let us go and make an alliance with the Greeks the, who live all around us, since we are separated. Now these people genetically were very mixed, but their language was Greek. The Greeks believed if you didn't speak Greek and you spoke a different language, which sounded to them like bar 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 bar, you were a barbarian, someone who didn't know Greek. It was a culture, not so much an ethnicity. Uh, uh, these were called in in the scriptures. They're called the Hellenists. You had the Hellenes, which were real life Greeks. Then you had the Hellenists. Uh, uh, who were Greek wannabes or, or people of Greek language uh, who had adopted the culture. And the Jews were very Hellenized, but they weren't really Greek wannabes. They wanted to be, especially in their religion, they wanted to be Jews. Uh, most of them probably, or at least a good portion of them. So there are these people saying, oh, get a life, give in to the people around you. Um, so, um, they did things like build a gymnasium according to the Gentile custom. Now, uh, you might want to put your fingers in the ears of younger, um, uh, listeners, uh, because otherwise you'll have to explain things, but Hey, history's history. They built a gymnasium in Jerusalem. The word gymnos in Greek means wearing only that suit of clothes that you had when you sprang from your mother's womb, or as we call it, the birthday suit. So that's what a gymnasium is. And sports in the ancient world were played, prayed, were played only in that particular suit, wearing nothing else except oddly enough, chariot racing. I have no idea why. They actually wore what looked like a full-length formal in a chariot race. Um, go figure. Well, they built a, a, a place like that in Jerusalem, and Jer the Jews were very fond of wearing sufficient clothing. Uh, um, and they covered over the mark of their circumcision. Again, I will try to be, um, what's the word, discreet. Uh, that Think about it. If you have a gymnasium where you are wearing your birthday suit, the mark of the covenant, that's what we will call circumcision. The mark of the covenant was very obvious. Now, of course, such a mark is, was considered medical and, you know, it's, it's not, you know, how would you know people wear clothing? Well, it was not so in the gymnasia. And the Greeks and the Romans thought the mark of the covenant was obscene because it exposed a part of the human body that should only be exposed in intimacy. It was obscene. And could you imagine joining a religion or being in a religion that required you to cut off an earlobe? That's how public a market was. So they would try to uh, surgically cover over their circumcision. Hmm. See, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, this mark was very important, the Mark of the Covenant, because it it was an indelible mark that separated you from all other people, that, that it wasn't something that you could uh, uh, sort of erase. It was, it was, in other words, the covenant was carved into your very flesh. Okay, so uh, the king wrote that his whole kingdom should be one people, 
each abandoning his particular customs, and the Gentiles, the non-Jews, conformed to the command of the king. Um, they sacrificed idols, they profaned the Sabbath, um, and on the 15th day of his left, the king erected the horrible abomination, in other words, a statue to a pagan god. And they built pagan altars. They burned incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets, uh, because, of course, you would have a, a shrines to gods all over. Uh, uh, so, well, whoever observed the law was condemned by royal decree. Uh, so that's the situation that this is describing, that the Greeks had decided you had to conform to the, um, uh, to the majority culture. This is why this book is inspired, because we are living in a very similar situation. We are forced, you know, that uh, it used to be, well, uh, that certain aberrant groups demanded rights. Okay. Well, pretty soon they went from demanding rights to demanding uh, uh, approval and then demanding collaboration. Um, <clears throat> I don't want to be too specific, but the, the uh, majority culture in our times is trying very, very hard to uh, squash nonconformist groups like, well, believing Catholics. And there are a lot of believing Catholics <laughs> or people who claim they're believers who want to conform the church to the society in which we live. This is amazingly analogous to the situation in the book of Maccabees that, that, um, uh, uh, you know, we shouldn't stand apart from the culture in which we live. On the contrary, there are certain times when it is absolutely necessary to do so. I believe this book is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and times like ours should remind us that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit because it's describing the society in which we live, not a society 2,130 years ago. So it's a good book to read and to study. Uh, uh, the, the, um, well, let's, let's go to Luke, the, um, uh, 18th chapter and the 35th verse and following as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. They said, Jesus is passing by. He shouted, Jesus, son of David, have pity on, on me. The people walking in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Isn't that interesting? We don't want you to, don't bother the master. Don't, don't bother the teacher. And he, he just longed to get Jesus' attention. Son of David, have pity on me. He stopped and ordered that he be brought to him. What do you want me to do for you? And he replied, Lord, please let me see. And he said, have sight, your faith has saved you. I think last week we were talking about trust. Saved by grace through faith. And it's, we're, we're saved by what God gives us through trust. And this blind guy, when he was said, shut up and, you know, Jesus isn't going to be interested in you. He, he, he trusted that Jesus was not going to kick him to the curb and his trust was reward. Jesus doesn't ever say I've saved you. He says, your trust has saved you. You can only be saved by a relationship with Christ, not by joining the club, 
not by performing certain acts, though they're very important in our relationship to Christ, but it is our trust in him. Jesus, I think that the divine mercy devotion, the prayer that St. Faustina taught us all to pray, Jesus, I trust in you, is the most profound restatement in our difficult times of the teaching of saved by grace through faith. Jesus, I trust in you. Uh, so I think there's a very, very interesting thing here. Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. What's he saying? Well, very interesting. The Messiah, there are at least two Messiahs in Judaism. There's the Messiah, son of Joseph, who is uh, gathers in the lost tribes of the north, the lost of Israel, uh, and prepares the way for the glorious Messiah, uh, son of David. So this blind man is acknowledging Jesus. Did you know that there there are two messiahs in in in, in Jewish belief? It's in Talmud. Well, uh, um, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls talk a lot about a double messiah. Actually, sometimes they talk about a triple messiah. Uh, um, it's usually just two. Uh, um, the job of the of the Messiah, son of Joseph, is is to um, uh, prepare the way for the uh, um, uh, the 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 glorious Son of David at the end of time, who will judge. Now, very in who will uh, uh, judge the world. But it's very very interesting that um, the the Messiah, son of Joseph, dies in battle against the is the the he's a suffering servant who dies in battle against the enemies of God in Israel I think that's that's very interesting because we uh, um, believe that 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 the Messiah <laughs> died in battle the battle on the cross so I think that's kind of interesting uh, I used to love to rub into Rabbi Lefkowitz, uh, um about uh, well his name was Yeshua ben Yosef no, 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 it's different. It's different. But but that that's the job of, of the Messiah, son of Joseph, to gather in the, the lost of Israel, which the ingathering of Israel is the church uh, and the ingathering of, uh, uh, you know, the modern state of Israel is really the ingathering of the tribe of Judah, perhaps, but it isn't the ingathering of Israel. The church is the ingathering of Israel because Israel is scattered through the nations and all the nations are gathered together in the church universal. So I think that's an important thing to understand, that Jesus, this first Messiah, uh, we believe that the Messiah, son of Joseph, and the Messiah, son of David, are the same guy. <laughs> but it's interesting that people sometimes are uncomfortable with the idea that Jesus rose and will come again at the end of time. That's a very, very Jewish idea. So look it up, Messiah, son of Joseph, uh, Messiah ben Yosef. Uh, very interesting. We're going to take a break, and then we will come back with Mass Hysteria. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Dogs and cats living together. Mass Hysteria. Morning has broken like the first morning. Blackbird has spoken like the first bird. 
Well, in mass hysteria, I think I'm going to uh, oh jump on the third rail. And now my other computer, you know, last week I had trouble with computer A. Now computer B is being difficult. But I think I can manage to... Uh, 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 to 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 muddle through without it, uh, to wax poetic as the voice in my head just said. Well, the um, I'm going to turn the whole thing off and see if that will. You know, they hate it when you do that. It, it tell them, shows them who's boss. But I got a letter about uh, well, uh, mass ad orientum, and uh, did I mention this? I think I'm sure I talked about this last week. Everybody, before we argue about the liturgy and theology and the situation in the church, everybody needs to read First Samuel, the 15th chapter, in which we read that rebellion is a sin like unto witchcraft. You, you got to not be a rebel. Um, sometimes you, you uh, resist, but not in, in rebellion. Um, that that uh, if a Hitler comes along, well, you don't obey Hitler. Uh, you don't obey what is immoral. But on the other hand, you're not the definer of all these things all the time. Okay, that said, obey your bishop because he is the person to whom God has given that responsibility, as we've been seeing in uh, so many readings. He's the person to whom God has given that responsibility. So obey your bishop because obedience is pleasing to God. And I think many people who want a more traditional approach to the liturgy want it because they like it. Um, and that's, un, that's, not, that's not from the Lord. To discuss something as, as why one way is good, why the other is good, well, that's reasonable. To have reasonable discussion about things. And that's one thing that there isn't a lot of these days. Good old reasonable discussion. So I want to discuss these things reasonably, uh, especially if I can actually pull up uh, the, that letter. Uh, but let's talk about this. Some people, how to put this, how to put this. I suspect that mass facing the people, you have uh, people talk about ad orientum. Uh, that means to the east. At St. Lambert's, when I said Mass at Orientum, it meant I was facing the people because the orientation of the church uh, was <laughs> was the opposite of most churches. It didn't face uh, east. It faced uh, uh, it faced uh, west. Or no, it faced it faced east. Didn't face uh, one of them. You understand what I mean? I'll move on. The um, the ad Orientum. Uh, um, what we really mean by that is turned toward the Lord and turned or and turned toward the people. So versus dominum means turned toward the Lord versus populum turned toward the people. Those are the phrases I'm going to uh, use. It is a mystery to me why we went against uh, millennia of tradition. Judaism, from which we take much of our liturgy, uh, is uh, turned toward the Lord. Uh, you got the Aaron in a synagogue, and uh, I think the first model for, for church uh, was modeled on the synagogue, which was ultimately modeled on, on, the, um, uh, on the temple. That you face the Aaron, the, the ark which holds the Torah scrolls. 
um, that's that's um, uh, why we why we did that. It makes great sense to me, and if you look at the rubrics of the mass, it makes great sense to me that uh, when you're when you're addressing when the, when the, the celebrant of the mass is addressing the Lord, to turn versus dominum, and when he is addressing the people to turn versus populum, turn towards the people, that's exactly what the rubrics expect. You read that about six or seven times, um, the priest now turned toward the people says, it would not say that if it was not expecting me turned away. Now, in the Novus Ordo, and I personally, I have no problem with the Novus Ordo. Um, there are changes I would make, but ultimately, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I do get kind of discouraged by people who say, well, it's not valid, it's not real. It's inferior. Um, um, I taught Latin for, what, 25 years? And you pray in your first language. Um, I, 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 that's the principal, the principal issue. Um, but where was I? This idea of being turned towards the people uh, or turned towards the Lord. If you look at the rubrics, one is expected. Now, I don't have any problem and usually when i say mass i mean i I say mass facing the people because that's what is expected uh but if you if you follow the rubrics in 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 the missile the rubrics are those red the red stuff and you got black things you say red things you do uh if you follow the rubrics the the red letters uh you're facing away from the people maybe in an hour mass maybe 20 minutes not much at all but I remember the first time I did it in the new liturgy at the behest of my deacon, and we would do one, one Sunday or one mass a Sunday. Uh, the other masses were faced toward the people. Uh, the early mass we would try to do. I called it the Novus Ordo by the book, uh, and we faced uh, the Lord <laughs> at certain parts of the mass. The I have no problem with facing the people. It's just you have to be a very, very holy priest with a very holy congregation to do that. It is much easier, I think, to understand the Mass as as a prayer addressed to the Father. When you're talking to the Father, you turn away from the people because it is almost impossible when you have maybe 300 sets of eyes looking at you not to play to the audience. It just is. That's what I mean when I say it takes a very holy priest and a very holy congregation. Uh, there are, if you look closely at the mass, it is a prayer. 90% of it, at least is a prayer addressed to the father. But what you do is you begin to gesture toward the people. Like you take the blessed, you take the host before the consecration says, and uh, I see priests all the time, kind of waving the host at the people saying, take and eat this. In other words, reenacting the last supper. The mass is not a reenactment of the last supper. It's a prayer to the Father, in which the Last Supper is discussed with the Father. Look at the the text of the liturgy. It's a prayer addressed to the Father. And when you look at Mass versus Populum or versus Dominum, in this context, it changes, I think, the way you look at it. Uh, Now, again, for disciplinary reasons, many bishops insists that we will we will have a unity of gesture in our diocese and you must respect that 
you must respect that because you might have a lovely liturgy which conforms to your taste and your standards, yet it is not pleasing to God because it is, it's disobedience. Remember what that text of First Samuel says, that obedience is more pleasing to the Lord than sacrifice. So obey. Well, we're obeying the Lord. Well, it's easy to say you're obeying the Lord. You're probably obeying your opinion of what the Lord would say if he took your advice. But I think if you look uh, simply at the way Mass is said, now, I'll, I'll, uh, especially for young people, it's very hard for young people not to think that the Mass is a theatrical presentation. And I, I've gone a little long, but I'll end with this. The um, What was I talking about? What was I thinking about? The, the, I, back when I was at St. Thomas, big Vietnamese congregation, and nobody could put on a great, a great show like the Vietnamese. They are grand and wonderful music and a great sense of... of of, of the dramatic and the voice might say good food, wonderful food. But a young man getting all ready for this liturgy in which there were two choirs and untold numbers of celebrants. I don't know if there was a bishop there or not. He came up to me with a chord. He says, Father, should I put this chord on the stage? And I was about to launch into it and say, it's not a stage. It's an on the, yeah, put it on the stage because it was a stage. It is very hard for a young peop- young person to see someone talking toward them and think they're not talking to them my my desire or my thought that perhaps uh, we should think more about mass ad orientum or turn to the lord is not a matter of it's better or worse it's for me a matter of catechesis a matter of catechesis to introduce young people to the idea that we are addressing a prayer in the person of Christ to the Father through the Holy Spirit. And we're not just having a dramatic presentation. But obey your bishop. All right. um, We're going to take a break, and I will be back with some letters. We're not taking the phone calls because it's a letter show today. I've got to catch up on these letters. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Yes, I want to see my Jesus shake his hand and have him greet us when they ring those gold. Let's go to the word of the day. In the gospel reading, I saw the word, please. What do you want me to do for you? He replied, Lord, please let me see. And so I thought, what word do they use for, for please? And so I looked it up and it's fascinating because the word please isn't in there. It's a subjunctive. Now, remember your grammar from your tedious uh, education, the subjunctive is about possibilities. And 
if you say go, that's a direct imperative, a superior to an inferior, or at least two equals. If I say, would you go? That's the subjunctive in English. It's built into the word in Greek. But what intrigued me more was the word that they use for see. It's anablepo, which sounds kind of funny. So that's our word for the day, anablepo. And it's the subjunctive that I may see. Uh, it's hina ana, uh, is it, I got to look it up. Uh, hina ana, is it anablepso? I think that's, I, I, I'd have to look it up. But the word hina means in order that, or so that, so that I may see. But that anablepo means to see again, or it can even mean to look up, that I might look up. And I thought that was very beautiful because uh, Jesus says, again, your faith has saved you. Reasonably, this guy is on his knees and he says that I might look up. Which, when you have ana, it can mean again, that I might see again or see anew. And I think that that that's a very beautiful way to put it. He wants to see things new. He wants to see things again. But he wants to look up above all to the Lord. Um, to see things in the light of Christ. Uh, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but well, I think it's a cool word. All right, let us now go to letters. This is from Ruth. Father Simon, I understand that the brown scapular of Mount Carmel can be worn by all, but investiture enrollment or slash enrollment of the brown scapular confraternity is less than clear. Is investiture slash enrollment required? If it is, or even if it isn't, how can you arrange that with whom? Talk to your pastor. You can any, any priest can enroll you in, in the scapular. But understand what being enrolled in the scapular is. It, you're taking on the spirituality of the Carmelites. To wear a scapular is to say, I have to live in the world. But I, I am deeply touched and formed by the spirituality of this religious order or group. And I think that a lot of people look at these things as amulets, and they're not. Uh, we don't believe in amulets. I, I, I believe very much in sacramentals. But I believe in sacramentals because the devil is such a good historian and such a clever lawyer. Uh, the, the devil can see history. And uh, I don't believe the devil knows the future, certainly not more than God has allowed him to see. But he can see the past with great precision. He's been there. And he can see the chain of, of, of physical contact that unites us to Christ. In other words, I was ordained by Cardinal Cody, who was consecrated bishop by Bishop A, who was consecrated bishop by Bishop B, who was consecrated bishop by Bishop C, all the way back to Christ. There is a tactile chain that goes from Jesus to Cardinal Cody to me. And you see, the devil hates our physicality. The devil hates bodies. Uh, C.S. Lewis in the Screwdriver talks about that, that, that we are these human vermin, these amphibians. Uh, and uh, um, as such, we're beneath the dignity of pure spiritual beings. You know, people say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Well, so is the devil. The devil's very spiritual. He's a pure spirit. God loves matter. God loves even our bodies because he created them for his purpose. And when I wear a scapular or a holy medal, I'm saying something to the invisible world 
from the visible world. That's that's where these things get their power. They're not amulets or good luck charms. There's no such thing as a good luck charm. There is a sacramental which ties us more deeply, physically and spiritually, to uh, uh, to Christ. So the brown scapular is is a particularly beautiful devotion. And before you are enrolled in the, in the scapular, perhaps you should read something about the spirituality of the Carmelites. And uh, if you are enrolled and know nothing about the spirituality of the Carmelites, read something about it. It isn't a good luck charm. It is a way of life. And it is a consecration to uh, to the Lord that is, is very particular. So, Ruth, I hope that helps. Uh, and uh, what I would do is I would study the brown scapula, study the spirituality of the Carmelites. And if you're called to that, uh, then go to your pastor and he can enroll you in that uh, in that uh, uh, scapular, if he's clueless, find another pastor who can help you. Uh, okay, let's see here. Now, let me go to my next one. Um, all right, this is from Mercedes. Referring to Jesus as the Son of Man, he has two natures, correct? Truly divine and truly human. So in referring to Jesus as the Son of God, it is referring to his divine nature, or when referring to Jesus as Son of Man, referring to his human nature? Or is there some other meaning behind Jesus being referred to as the Son of Man? I've shared this a lot. In the book of Daniel, you read about the Son of Man. One like a Son of Man. Behold, I saw one like a Son of Man. Let me me pull that up. Uh, I saw... One like a son of man. Okay, press the little enter button. Daniel 7.13. In the vision of the night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given dominion, glory, and kingship, that the people of every nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Son of Man is a celestial being who comes from the throne of God. The Son of Man is a reference to the divinity of Jesus, not to his humanity. Uh, And it is very interesting that the devil has no problem in the New Testament calling Jesus the Son of God. Uh, Adam, in the scriptures, is called Son of God. Uh, (laughs) That that, uh, the Son of Man is uniquely acclaimed to Jesus' divinity. And the devil, as I say, is a fine theologian. Uh, uh, (laughs) He knew God personally uh, at the beginning. Well, this this title, Son of Man, uh, is a attribute uh, um, uh, an attributing to himself of divinity. It was Jesus' favorite title for himself, and the devil never does that. It's as if the devil's saying, if God will just mind his own business and stay in heaven, he's fine with that. But it's when God leaves his throne in heaven and comes to earth, that's where the devil's upset. Uh, the scripture says elsewhere, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Messiah. Uh, that the devil, the devil says, no, it's not. It's mine. And then the Lord Jesus, when he calls himself son of man, is saying, no, it's not. In my humanity and in my divinity, I have come to reclaim for my heavenly father what has been mine all along. So that's an excellent question. And I hope 
I have made I have addressed it clearly. All right, let's see. Here's one. Um, this is from Angela. I heard a talk on attending the wedding feast of the Lamb, specific to how we attire ourselves. The speaker contrasted how we go to a typical wedding versus how many people show up to church in beach and gym attire. Uh, uh, it struck a chord, and I've been pondering that for a while. I have finally emailed our pastor, who called me back within hours in agreement and wanted help with the homily focus. A uh, very touchy subject written on in the bullet. I wrote on that in my bulletin. I spoke on it from the pulpit. It did absolutely no good. Um, that genie is out of the bottle, uh, and I do not, for one, know how to put it back in. I think the only person I can control is me, and so I will go to Mass. You know, occasionally, now that I'm retired, I actually attend Mass, and I was so embarrassed. The last time I attended Mass, I was traveling, and I had only I had only brought... Uh, uh, walking shoes. I'd forgotten to bring dress shoes. I dressed as well as I could and wore these ridiculous shoes, but thank God most people don't look at your feet. Norwegians do, but other than that, I'm, I'm joking, I'm joking. Uh, no, you, there's no one you can control about this except yourself. And I think if enough of us decided to dress well for Mass, that it might put some of that genie back in the bottle. Um, if I and my kids, although I, I'm not talking about me, I, I have no children, other than spiritually, I hope. Uh, if I and those who are with me dress well for Mass, then that's the best I can do. So, um, you know, it, it would be nice to start a movement of people who dress well for Mass. All right, let me see. Uh, here's one. Let's see here. This is from uh, uh, Conrad. Why does the church insist on burial? Costs of cemetery plots are so expensive. Why would God care about this? This is a serious question. I can't figure out why the church cares about this. I try to be a good Catholic. Well, Conrad, you have a point. The funeral industry has just about priced itself out of business. When I was a lad in the woolly mammoth roamed, you still had what you called churchyards. And in Germany, I remember going, first place I went to when I went back to Germany to find the family, we'd sort of lost contact because what were those things, um, uh, the uh, recent unpleasantness, World War One or World War Two. But after the wars, we were ready to, to strike up the conversation again. So in 1973, I went to Germany. And the first place I went, because it was next to the... Uh, um, train station was the cemetery to find the graves of my ancestors, which I did. And it was fascinating because I walked into the cemetery and I asked uh, the caretaker where this, the, let's call them, I don't want to give away the name, who knows, the Schmitzengruber family. Uh, where are the Schmitzengruber family graves? I don't know, but there's two live ones over there. They were decorating the graves for All Souls Day. And that's how I found my my relatives in Germany. It was a little more complicated than that, but I can't tell the whole story here. But um, the the churchyard was visibly about three or four feet higher than the rest of town. That's because people had been buried in the churchyard for years, and uh, it was a place of home. And what happened, you'd be buried in a wooden box, and in 20 years, the grave would be declared reusable because everything had gone back to the earth. The wood, the, 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 the deceased, and 
most, if not all, of the bones. And then when my cousin Frank came over to America and realized that we are buried in these liners, these concrete liners, and in these metal coffins, he said, what do you think you are, pharaohs? You see, we did practice an organic method of burial uh, in times past. Uh, from dust you came to dust you shall return. And it gave uh, it gives people a sense of 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 family really, uh, um, and a sense of closure. So it's humanly very good. Uh, the reason that I, I was told the reason that we we in this country are so strange about burials and bury ourselves like pharaohs is that apparently somebody tripped in a grave uh, that was that was uh, sinking because of time and was seriously injured so the lawsuit meant oh boy now we can sell all this expensive stuff one can be cremated but it is important to be buried in consecrated ground why because of the profound we respect we have for the human body the human body is the property of god and that's why we are so concerned about burial. We've been concerned about burial since the catacombs. It is not just an incidental thing. The body, we believe that the body is sacred. I am not a, a spirit trapped in flesh. I am an incarnate spirit. My body really is me. And it is in some sense the the precursor, the, the shell of the resurrection body. So we treat it with great reverence. That's why the church cares about this. But I do think we need to do something about this. If, uh, uh, for religious reasons, perhaps we need to return to the concept of the churchyard uh, and uh, um, realize that uh, uh, the American way of burial is is nuts. So um, I, I don't know if that's if that's uh, helpful. I, 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 but I, I, you can't scatter your ashes. You can't throw a body in the, in the garbage. It's to be treated with great respect and reverence because it is the temple of the Holy, the Holy Spirit. Oy. Um, speaking of cemeteries, I got a letter from Ramona uh, in Philadelphia. When we visit the cemetery to pray for the dead, can we take a list of names? Of course you can. Do we have to personally know the deceased, or can others ask us to make this prayer for the loved ones? Yes, others can ask you to to pray for the loved ones. That's the neat thing about prayer is it's, 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 <laughs> you know, nobody wants to get us saved more than God does. So uh, God will make whatever exception is possible. And so um, if you don't personally know them, you're still a member of their family because they're a member of the church, you're a member of the church. So yeah, bring lists, pray for lots of people, even if you don't know them. If someone asks you to pray for their deceased, do it. Okay, now I got one from Maryland. Can you tell us the time frame of Jesus' birth, flight in Egypt, and presentation in the temple after 40 days? How long did it take them to get to Egypt? Then did they go from Egypt back to Jerusalem for the presentation? No, I really can't tell you that. Uh, that that uh, the presentation would have happened, I, I believe it would have to happen. The circumcision would have had to happen eight days after the uh, birth of Jesus. It didn't have to happen in the temple. It could happen anywhere. The presentation was the buying back of the firstborn after 40 days, so around 40 days that would have happened. And then after that, they would have fled into Egypt. Uh, so that's the probable scenario. But the point of this is uh, um, not so much... Uh, 
the time frame of it, but the meaning of the events that, that everybody knew the time frame. Uh, there were people alive who'd witnessed it. What they were interested in was the significance of these events. Um, and from the, the common fund of knowledge, the authors of the Gospels wrote Gospels that emphasized certain things to, to back up their, their theological and spiritual points. So we get very concerned about these as histories. And though the details in the Bible, I believe, are absolutely historical. I really think there was, were magi. And I really think there were shepherds. And I really think there was a flight into Egypt. And I really think there was a slaughter of the innocents. However, the time frame of them isn't nearly as important to the authors as the idea that they fulfill prophecy or demonstrate a fact about the Lord. So there you go. And also, you ask a little bit about St. Joseph spending much time with Jesus and St. Joseph's death. Did he leave his mother after Joseph's death and then start his ministry? Scriptures don't talk about it because that's not what they were doing. They weren't trying to be biographies of Jesus. Uh, they were written for a different purpose. We're about to, I'm about to hear music in my head, and uh, that means we are about to go to Drew. And I would in I would, in, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Some grand word. I would entreat you to stay tuned for Drew because I just think that it is the coolest thing that the Divine Mercy Chaplet is the largest prayer meeting in history every day. And it is one of the great things that happens on Relevant Radio. We don't just talk at you. Well, I do. But we pray with you. And you pray with us. And uh, we can do more, I think, for the country by prayer than by all of my endless and complex sermons. So stay tuned and pray with the family. 